Welcome back to the Cloudcast. This is the first episode in our new series covering our generations issue. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. And I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief at Plow. In this episode, we'll be talking about my editorial and then speaking with Prince Michel Suzalmzalm, a German landowner whose family has been managing the same vineyards and woodlands for a thousand years. So this is the first uh, episode covering our generations issue. Um, Pete, do you want to talk about what we were thinking when we came up with this concept? Why we wanted to talk about generations. Yes. You know, Susanna, we were started thinking about this back during the COVID pandemic, didn't we? When we looked at the just appalling numbers of elderly people who were dying in nursing homes, uh, and there were reports coming out about how isolated they were. Uh, in fact, there was some pretty, you know, sobering reports on how just loneliness and isolation was a huge predictor of who would die of COVID. And it just raised a whole bunch of questions uh, about the place of the elderly. What role do they play in society? Why were so many socially and physically separated from younger generations. And uh, at the same time, you know, you see this search for roots, uh, this search for deeper, kind of thicker forms of community um, in various places in the internet. And I think in real life, um, in, in different kind of nationalist projects for one uh also just in uh you know kind of identity politics on, on the left as well and uh pulling all those things together just you know what it would be really good to talk about how the generations are tied together how they should be tied together what it means to give a good legacy to the upcoming generation how do you do that um so Tying all those things together was our aim in this issue. Uh, and wh what are you thinking about when you think about this topic, Susanna? Um, I mean, primarily, I'm kind of thinking about my own family, um, which is large and goes back a ways and has many opinions on what its legacy ought to be. And, and also just obviously, again, I got married six months ago. And so we made a new family that is out of this, these two old families that we came from and, and continuing them and figuring out what um, my husband's and my legacy is going to be and what we're going to pass on to the next generation. Like these all feel very, like very live issues. And then they also feel very live in, um, in terms of contemporary sort of set the, the, the contemporary sense of deracination. Um, and what Simone Weil called the need for roots and how real and sort of vivid um, that is and what a good and important part of us that is to address. Um, and how prone, though, to kind of go off the rails as well. Very, very easily prone to go off the rails, that is, in lots of different ways, actually, politically and personally. So I wrote a editorial. You did. Yeah, I did. And thanks for all your comments on it, Susanna. And speaking of Simone Weil and the need for roots, it's called Yearning for Roots. Now, I wasn't thinking about Simone Weil, uh, at least when I started writing it. I was thinking of Alex Haley's 
you know, big doorstop buck uh, roots, right? Um, Alex Haley, famously uh, journalist, historian, who back in the 1970s writes this big book that tells the story of his family, uh, his African-American family back through slavery to this ancestor or putative ancestor, Kunta, Kunta Kunte in Africa, who was kidnapped and brought over uh, on the slave ships. And uh, this book becomes a bestseller. It becomes one of the biggest TV sensations uh, ever. 85% of U.S. households watched the finale. Um, what? And it sparks, yeah, isn't that crazy? I mean, this is also <laughs> commentary on the 1970s, right? Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> but uh, he sparks this huge interest in family history that has continued unabated uh, up to today when you have, you know, family service uh, companies like 23andMe or um, Ancestry and others uh, becoming popular holiday gifts, right? Here's your DNA kit and you too can find out uh, how Irish or uh, Italian or, you know, Nigerian you are. And, have, you uh, done, have, you, have you done one of those? I have not, absolutely not done that. I mean, I'm not going to give away DNA to some big commercial database ever. Uh, just so I can find out how Neanderthal I am, right? <laughs> you, I can tell you right now. You're a quite quite a large percentage. I think I am. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely from the suspicious zone of Northern Europe where there's lots of Neanderthals lurking. And they probably were... A, a, alive a lot longer than most people think that's my personal theory we're getting but, into serious ancient alien stuff right yeah, away yeah yeah yeah, yeah yeah so roots right alex haley um and i just found this story absolutely fascinating because it ties into uh these family search databases the biggest one ancestry.com is founded by two brigham young university graduates um, who are given access to the genealogical archives maintained by the Mormon church because they are themselves Mormons. And that's sort of where Ancestry.com comes from, is from this Mormon church genealogical database. Now, many people may know why the Mormon church has a genealogical database. Um, but, but some may not. Some may not. So why is that, Susanna? Um, as I understand it, I, I'm, you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, Mormon theology teaches that one of the ways that we can sort of honor and love our ancestors is by baptizing them or by getting baptized on behalf of them, as many of them as possible, into, I guess, Mormonism. Now, you and I have never been at such a ceremony because I believe you need to be Mormon to actually visit the temple for this vicarious baptism, but... The founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, uh, said this wonderful line, the greatest responsibility in this world that God has laid upon us is to seek after our own dead. So uh, that's taking roots pretty seriously. And I take roots somewhat seriously, but I'm not quite sure to Joseph Smith levels as seeing that as the greatest responsibility in this world that God has laid upon us. However, be that as it may, um, here's this word connection to Alex Haley, which 
listeners may have been asking themselves, how are we connecting these two things? He's invited by BYU, by Brigham Young University, the Mormon Church functionally, um, at the height of his fame in 1977 to receive an honorary doctorate. And specifically, the church honors him uh, for basically popularizing family history research, which is something that the Mormon church is trying to promote in general. And uh, in doing so, the university uh, justifies its doctorate with these words we see in what Alex Haley has done, a remarkable example of the hearts of the fathers reaching down through the generations to the children and the hearts of the children reaching back to their fathers. We hear of all people, and speaking of, I suppose, of the Mormon student and faculty body of Brigham Young University, we hear of all people can understand and honor his great work in responding to these impulses. And I was just thinking, you know, although this, you know, I, I, I suspect you do not share the Mormon's belief in vicarious baptism into Mormonism. Um, I, I certainly do not. However, this idea of the hearts of the fathers reaching down to the generations of the children and vice versa struck me as a kind of powerful line, even though you could say it's a bit purple, um, because that really is what Haley was doing, in his case very specifically, uh, telling African Americans, you too have a family history, you come from somewhere, you should live up to something. Um, Haley at the time told this Mormon newspaper, Deseret News, families need to get their history recorded, talk to the oldest members of the family about the most minute details they can recall. Once they are gone, they are irreplaceable. Well, I think many families do this. Probably not enough, but definitely my family did. Like growing up, I heard stories of my grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. Um, I could visit you know, long-distant cousins in Switzerland who would still use, you know, the do form because we both came from the same um, Riga, you know, patrician family uh, and back 100 years ago, right? And there's something to that. There's something actually very cool about that. Um, you can be friends with some very unexpected people through your family, through a blood tie that is actually a bit random. Uh, and yet, although I kind of grew up assuming everybody was like that, I was really shocked to find, shocked not in a moral sense, just like surprised, to find a, a survey that Ancestry.com, the BYU-founded uh, family history service, that only 47% of Americans, could you believe this, Susanna? Only 47% of Americans can name all four grandparents, and only 4% of Americans can na name all eight great-grandparents. I mean, that's just an astounding lack of connection to older generations, and also kind of, going back to COVID, explains why there's all these grandparents sitting in nursing homes unvisited and dying of COVID without any meaningful connection to subsequent yeah. generations. That was that... Reading that made me feel like I belonged to a totally alien culture, um, like that. That's so distant. My, my uh, growing up, I had a very similar thing to you, where we would we would tell stories of the family, and we have like all of these, 
you know, we, we've got a, this Connecticut place where we have trees that are planted in memory of the, the family dead because we can't actually bury them there because they don't let you do that kind of thing in Connecticut. Um, but yeah, like this is very much, I, I assumed, I didn't assume, I knew that our family was weird, but I kind of didn't realize how weird. So, so dear, dear listeners, uh, you're listening to two apparently statistical weirdos, although I kind of hope uh, that you two belong to families where you know certainly your grandparents and great-grandparents. And if you don't, maybe it's a good time to uh, you know, hop online and, and figure out who they are. You don't need to be Mormon to care about these people. But why is that? I mean, are, are we just being weird or is there a reason why it's actually good to know who your great-grandparents are even if you never knew them? I mean, I first of all, I think just from a kind of on a basic level, I at least experience the desire to like I I have a love for my grandparents and for my great grandparents and for my great great grandparents, although I know less about them still quite a bit. Um, and yeah, like I, I, I know them and I share with my current with my family, the family who are alive now you know, a sense of being descended from them. And that's been very important to me for my whole life. Like that's been a huge part of my life and of understanding who I am. And, you know, whether or not I should care about that, I do. And I actually don't think that there's anything at all bad about that. I think it's extremely natural and good. So for me, it's been absolutely formative. Uh, I even wrote an entire book about the life story of my non-famous grandfather because you know in a way to understand uh why you've been put on earth um understanding what your forebears lived for who they were what you have to live up up to uh i think is can be very important now obviously there are people who you know, don't have access to that. There's people who are adopted. There's people who, whose parents are just unknown. I mean, one big reason some people go to Ancestry or 23andMe is to actually find out about their biological uh, parentage or, or farther back uh, because, you know, they, they, they were not able, as Alex Haley, you know, urged us to go and, and talk to these older generations. They just didn't know them. You know, I have one friend who was telling me, you know, his mother is adopted, and it was a great surprise to him watching his own kids grow up uh, because you, you just didn't know what would happen, right? It was like like getting the, the surprise toy out of a box because you didn't have any family on one side to, to compare back to or look at old photos. You know, how did grandma look when she was a girl? Um, what your kids' interests were, you know, what they were good at, whether they were good at soccer or, you know, going to be artists, it was just a complete sort of surprise. And and that was kind of interesting. But I think most people like that do experience that not as something great, like, yay, you know, I, I'm starting from a blank slate and I don't have to worry about my ancestors. A lot of people, at least, judging from, you know, the people who use these services, really do desire that connection back um, that Alex Haley felt was so important. Yeah, I am. Um, there's one kind of little anecdote here. There was this guy I had a crush on probably like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something who he's, he's Jewish. 
his parents uh, were dedicated communists in Belarus. So his parents had been, because their parents were also dedicated communists, put into collective orphanages. This is like something that you did to kind of show that you were very, very serious about being communist because, you know, even raising your children should not be a private thing. Um, and because his parents had been raised in orphanages, his parents had never learned any nursery rhymes um, or lullabies. And so when he was growing up, his parents didn't sing lullabies to him. And so he didn't know any lullabies. And I was totally shocked by that sense of like communism as this thing that just comes around and like takes an ax to the generations. And I, you know, there are versions of communism that I'm very much in favor of, including the Bruderhof kind. Um, and I'm certainly not an apologist for capitalism, which I think also sucks because I think it does similar stuff. Um, but it was just very vivid to me. Like there's something very important to this totalizing ideology that needs to take an ax to the generations. Um, and I think that that's something that we should pay attention to. Why we believe this sense of roots, the sense of continuity between generations is so important. Uh, it is something just judging from this one survey from ancestry.com, but also just from common life seems to be, yeah, eroded by capitalism, certainly in the sense that capitalism encourages the erosion of any sort of traditional forms of community and intergenerational com continuity. Um, but also just like by the modern idea, right? That uh, now is what matters, you know, we're the ones we've been waiting for. Um, modernity in general is sort of dismissive of the past. And, and if you look back on the past, it's sort of this benighted time uh, that's only valuable insofar as it leads up to us. Uh, what do you have to learn from earlier generations um, apart from maybe, you know, looking down at them for being less enlightened than we are now. My friend group in New York, we have an annual ad for Sunday of Advent tradition of watching Whit Stillman's movie Metropolitan. And there's this one line where, you know, Tom Townsend, who's the hero, kind of says to um, Audrey, who's the, the heroine, something like they're, they're talking about Jane Austen. And she loves Jane Austen. He thinks Jane Austen is ridiculous, although he's never read any Jane Austen. He's just read critical essays by Lionel Trilling about Jane Austen. Um, and he says something like, but all the, like the, the whole, um, all those conventions and all those sort of ways of life, they're just um, completely ridiculous in our time. And Audrey says, did you ever think that we might look completely ridiculous to someone from Jane Austen's time? And I think that's a kind of good sort of, helpful heuristic to think about every now and then, like what of our world would our ancestors think was ridiculous and silly? So we've, we've kind of sketched out a few reasons why we think, you know, we agree with Alex Haley, if not entirely with the Mormon church, that it's kind of a good thing for the hearts of the children to reach back to the fathers and mothers and right, vice versa to the extent that that's possible. And maybe when we get into the more sort of Christian part of it, we can think about how it might be possible for the long dead to actually have something to do with us today. Um, but we won't get to that quite yet. 
Now, we also, so you could say that's almost like our first um, claim in this podcast series, Suzanne, about generations, is that roots are good. There should be more roots and intergenerational connectivity. Yep. But, right? But, yeah. So let's talk about the but. A big part of the but is that very obviously there are forms of politics that can take the this intense human desire for roots um, and give promises relating to that that have to do with a kind of um, a sort of ethnic nation that will allow you to have this fundamental sense of belonging that you know you you don't have and because you don't have it i think i think very frequently when people don't have that kind of fundamental sense of intergenerational belonging that's real that's like concrete in their own families they have this kind of um they, they can be very susceptible to the promise of like the nation as this kin group that, that is like a big family um you know obviously this is a lot of german romantic uh political philosophy, um, Herder in particular. How could you possibly knock the German romantics? I, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I know, like the Bruderhof comes out of this as well, sort of. Um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to love about German romanticism, but boy. They, they are not uncomplicated. No. So, I mean, yeah, when, when you have a family that is concrete, that you can draw from and you can inherit you know, whose dreams and um, legacy you can inherit. That's an incredible blessing. Um, and I think it's a blessing that in a way everyone should have, and it's sad if you don't have it, in the way that everyone should have two parents. Everyone should have parents who don't die when they're a kid. There shouldn't be people who are orphans, like all these in an unfallen world kind of thing. These wouldn't happen. Um, and I think in an unfallen world, you know, we would all have personal connection, like, you know, we wouldn't be cut off from our actual families. Um, but that A, there's a lot of think caveats here, like Jesus came to deal with the fact that the world is fallen. So that's kind of a preview of coming attractions. So don't freak out if you are an orphan or if you did grow up as I did in a divorced family, although my parents were both so intense about being parents anyway that it didn't feel like I don't know, severing. Um, or, you know, if you don't have like a long great, great, great grandparental uh, tradition of story and song and, and light verse, there's still hope for you. But I do think that if you don't, and if you really have that hunger, it can be very easy to seek an answer to that hunger, seek, seek food that turns out to be some kind of extreme ethno-nationalist poison rather than good nourishing food where the desire for for kinship and identity um for lack of a better term gets out of proportion to other things that are good in life and i i, I wondered you know if this doesn't you know become a temptation more and we've talked about this before Susanna, where that real intergenerational family is lacking. So it's where you're living a kind of isolated life, 
kind of cut off from your grandparents, great grandparents, also sort of where your families came from, just because of geographic mobility, maybe living in a suburb somewhere online too much, it becomes a lot easier to kind of project this longing for identity onto some negative sort of blood and soil type stuff, right? And there's a reason that the original blood and soil from the last century, you know, also got big in a society that had recently industrialized and was actually cut off from, you know, natural families, actual families. It was something that, I mean, I'm just reading now um, Dietrich von Hildebrand's um, My Struggle Against Hitler, which is fantastic. It's basically his memoir. Um, of the generation of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and all those guys. Um, he's Catholic. Everyone should get von Hildebrandt Hild. Um, but he talks about the the seduction or enchantment of those kinds of ideas precisely because people were hungry for something good and they were getting given something that sort of tasted like that good thing, but turned out to be very bad indeed. And just to be quite blunt, like there are forms of that around today, right? And you can see that with uh, certain forms of white nationalism or other forms of ethnic nationalism on the internet, right? Where people are actually essentializing kind of, you know, aspects of themselves as key to their core identity based on, I guess, you know, um, real or imagined kind of DNA genetic similarity to others. Um, as if that were the basis of human identity and community and mm -hmm. culture. Yeah. Um, or rather the only basis and the, the one only that, basis mm -hmm. that really trumps, so to speak. Um, because if we're going to get now to our third point, our first point is roots are good. Our second point is here's the buts. Um, and our third point, I think that we're going to make in this, you know, and these are all things that we want to explore in the next few uh, episodes of this podcast is, of course, this is a Christian podcast. So let's think about it in a Christian way. And one thing that uh, your husband, Susanna Alistair, uh, points out in our issue, and I look forward to talking with both of you about this, is the importance of genealogy in scripture. So unlike, you know, the people today who can't name their grandparents or great grandparents, scripture shows a huge interest in these, you know, tables of begats um, going back generation upon generation. Um, and so for anyone who is a Christian or interested in Christianity, that seems to cast an interesting light on how to think about roots. Um, and of course, the most prominent one for Christians is the genealogy of Christ himself. And I'm not sure that we're going to get into that deeply, but I think we can tease it by saying that what's fascinating about this genealogy is that it's precisely not a genetic genealogy. It, uh, it, lands up with Joseph, who is not the biological father of Jesus. And that raises a whole bunch of 
really fascinating questions that kind of gets at the heart of, you know, this issue of generations. Um, and we want to get into that a little with Alistair when we have him on a subsequent episode of this. Um, but I think it is important to at least note that the Christian tradition does affirm the goodness of the family of, you know, fathers and mothers having children who have children and a sense of connectivity, a sense of honor and duty. Um, the Decalogue certainly commands honor of father and mother, and one can understand that is also extending back on through the generations. Uh, and yet, you know, Jesus didn't leave children behind, and the early church placed a great value on celibacy, and Jesus himself redefined his family as those who do the will of the Father in heaven uh, when his mother and his brothers were looking for him. So without, without trying to interpret that, you know, in any type of final way, uh, let's just say that Christianity approaches this question in a kind of layered way, and in a way that certainly includes those who may not know their ancestry, those who may not have a, a pedigree, um, those who aren't, you know, of illustrious stock, and also those who are childless, who are, are not going to, you know, themselves biologically form part of the chain of generations, and yet form part of a greater family, that redefined family, uh, that is continuing through the generations. And so, so those are just a few of the themes, and Susanna, I'm probably missing a whole bunch of them, but those are a few of themes that kind of form our third kind of point of interest in this series of podcasts is, what's the Christian way of thinking about this in a way that includes everybody? Yeah. And includes all all of these truths that I feel like there's three big truths here that, that we've talked about. And you can't really kind of pull back on any of them. And I think the first two truths are to a certain degree contained in the, the Christian approach and in Christ's own approach um, and in the, the, the approach of the whole Council of Scripture to how to think about our families, how to love our families, what family means, and um, the relationship between natural and adoptive or other forms of family. It's all, there's there's no real, it, in thinking about this stuff, it just feels to me like something that is more like dance than like a final answer. Um, there's not a kind of like, you know, a univocal blood and soil Christianity, like that's not Christianity. And there's not a univocal anti-natural um, family Christianity, that's not Christianity either. Um, and figuring out what reality is in light of the gospel and in light of our all of our experiences um, with regard to generations, that's what we're here to do in this, the new season of the Plowcast. 
And now we're very happy to welcome Prince Mikhail Zuzamsong. He's a landowner, entrepreneur, winemaker, and forester, the heir to Walhausen Castle and the surrounding lands and title in southern Germany, and is in, I believe, the 32nd generation of his family on that land. So I guess to start off, uh, do, uh, assuming that not necessarily all of our listeners will have read the piece, um, do you want to just sort of describe your family a little bit to let people know uh, where you're coming from? Well, we live in the Rhineland area near Mainz, Frankfurt, on the west bank of the Rhine. <clears throat> and my family happens to live here the last thousand years. Not uh, without interruptions. We were forced out seven times, but never by the people of the homeland, but by French, Swedes, Spanish, uh, Russians, whomever, during these thousand years. And I consider it being a big blessing that we always managed coming home again and restarted life here. So um, I'm the 32nd generation living here at that very place together with my big family. We have six children. We all of them are married. All of them have children again. So we have 25 grandchildren, which is just wonderful. <laughs> I'm 17 years old and from profession, I'm an economist and vine grower and forester and uh, did a lot of other things during my lifetime, uh, being in politics and being in entrepreneurship, being in social jobs and duties. Yes, and Philippa is the most important part of, of my life and our family life. My wife coming from Castel, quite a similar family living there for a very long time. I'm Catholic, she's Protestant, and that's what's all about. Very traditional Catholic family. You got to know that in Germany, after the 30 years war, which came to the end with a peace agreement, and part of that peace agreement was that you could live your, your faith, your religion, but you could not stay in a country which was governed Catholic and or Protestant. And so the saying was cuius regio, eius religio, who is a, who is a ruler, he decides about the face of the people, the religion. And in my case, it was Catholic in Philippa's case, it was Protestant. Not a good thing to do, but at least it brought peace in those days, um, but of course, a very, very hurting experience in the spiritual life of the people. So when we came together, my family wasn't happy that I'm going to marry a Protestant lady. Yes, there really started our life with Jesus because I was raised in a Jesuit college um very good training for the brain but very bad for heart and real believing and trust in the lord and so i really lost my face in those days in that college and 
uh, founded back by seeing the rich parts of Protestantism, knowing about the Bible and the word and being very trustworthy in the Lord. And so um, we decided and really discovered that Jesus is, is the, the boss in both in Catholic and in Protestant churches or should be the boss, at least should be and became the boss in our marriage. You then uh, were very active around uh, the time that there were celebrations of the 500th uh, anniversary of the Reformation in 2017. Uh, you were very active, certain initiatives around then. Would you be able to tell us a bit about them? I believe that's when uh, some of the, f the first contacts that we had uh, from Plow and from the Bruderhof Communities, which publishes the magazine. I discovered first in 85 the value and the importance of reconciliation. And that happened in my home village where there was a big celebration of, of the church building 500 years earlier. It's a small village, but the president of the Republic came and the bishop and so forth. It was a big celebration. And I was asked to give a speech for the family because it was all about the family building the church, building the castle and so forth and so forth. And I realized we didn't build it. It were the people who did it and therefore forced to build it and not not treated always in a nice way. And I decided to talk about that and to ask for forgiveness. And that was very moving experience for me because in our village, I felt always very much at home and very well accepted. And in elections, I got in secret elections, I got 90% of the votes and so forth. But when I asked for forgiveness, what my family has also done in those centuries, bad things, I, I can't, cannot only take the good things about it and be the hair, but have also to take care of the bad things, in my view. The mayor, who is a friend of mine, came and said, Prince Michael, now after so many years, everything is good again, and after you ask for forgiveness, we, we give that forgiveness. And that was a wonderful moment and a turning point in my life and in the village. It really started flowering and, and developing very well and we work even better together than ever. So I realized if that reconciliation in a small piece of the country is important. It might be and should be important in the bigger history. And of course, all what happened around the Reformation was so important. And Luther was such a big guy bringing that Reformation. Interesting enough, my family turned immediately to the, to the Protestant, to Luther went with him for about three generations and then turned back again for Catholicism just because of 
yeah, you would say it corruption or one of my uncles was able to become electorate of Mainz, which is the number one elector of the emperor, you know, the German emperor was elected by seven electorates and to become one of them was a very important career step. It was the prime minister of the country, so to say, but the career could only go that way when the family turned back to Catholicism. So we probably didn't do it those days. I couldn't talk to the guys <laughs> 500 years or 400 years ago, but in my view, he was educated Protestant turned 20, in the age of 20 to become Catholic for the career and not for other good reasons. So I thought that's important to bring that to Jesus and also to the people who have been involved and the families and all those many, many millions who had been disturbed by our doing over the centuries. And there is reconciliation and saying sorry, so sorry for that important and necessary. And um, yes, that we tried to do. And we also invited all the noble families of Germany to do so with us. And that happened in Erfurt. And on the other hand, we learned all that in that movement versus where we got to know each other Wittenberg 2017. So that is a process uh, that's a, a walk through history going back to the good things of history, but also remembering and regretting and trying to pray and ask for forgiveness for the bad things which happened. And it's Jesus, it's Jesus who, who went to the cross for our sins. I mean, we tend and I tend to tell people how wonderful and great I am. But I'm a sinner and, and Jesus didn't come for the, the wonderful heroes, but for us as sinners. It sounds to me, I mean, just hearing your story, it's one solution to the 30 years war is the peace of the peace of Westphalia and the principle of cuius regio eius religio and then eventually political liberalism. And then the other solution to the, the 30 years war is a unity between Catholic and Protestant, you know, in in a family under the Lordship of Christ. It, it seems like a sort of alternative to the um, the kind of modernist uh, liberal version of peace. And your version strikes me as a more deeply rooted peace, um, the peace that you and Philip have between you. How did she come to her own faith? Is that something that that you could talk about? Because obviously she was raised Protestant, but it seems to have been a very deep faith for her early on. You see, when she was young, let's say till the age of 12 or so, the marriage of her parents were not happy. And her parents found in 63 roundabout Jesus in their lives and the marriage turned to becoming a good one in Jesus. 
Philippa saw her parents and their development and that showed her that the Lord is a wonderful savior and helps, especially as her brother, her younger brother, he was to become the heir of the family, was killed in a car accident. That was one year before we met. And um, she was very much impressed how face in the Lord gave her parents strength and they kept on as believers. So I would say her face was rooted in and based on good experience. We went being engaged. My uh, parents-in-law sent us to a seminar of so-called Marburger Kreis, which tries to show people that Jesus is in the center of our lives, should be in the center of our lives. And we both went there because before that we we fought very theoretically Catholic. I was good in brain by trained by Jesuits. I could explain very well what Catholics believe. And she was very much rooted in Protestantism. So um, we were on two different planets. And to see in that week of Marburger Kreis meeting that the Lord in the planets is Jesus um, that saved our or stopped our, how would you see, very theoretically fights between religions and brought us to him. That's a wonderful story. And how do you see the future uh, of this work, of this work for reconciliation? What needs to happen? Uh, I, I know you've been involved and bring Christians together across some of these divides. I'm very optimistic. I can see so many wonderful movements in the world like yours, like the Buddha Gemeinde and many, many others. When the Lord um, founded the world, he created the man in his image. And now we are seven million billion people so you need billions and billions of people to get the whole image of the Lord and we will never get it. So to me, it seems very clear that there are different ways of how to pray, how to praise, how to move forward to Jesus. If you are centered in Jesus, he is our planet, he is our Lord, he is our center. And we, looking to him, we will be able to stop fighting, but will praise him as our savior and Lord. That is why reconciliation and praying and praising and asking and reading his words together to me seems to be so important.
that is why we are not i mean i'm still working now a bit with catholic church and i'm still at home in my catholic church and philippa in the protestant church but we are very much open to see the wonderful much bigger world jesus works walks through on the globe and let's walk together reconciled and as friends in his love i wonder if we could turn now to the piece you wrote for us which is on something that has a lot to do with the story of your family uh you mentioned you're the 32nd generation uh in the same area of the world the same land uh, with its vineyards and forests and farmland uh and there you're talking about uh sustainability and taking care and stewardship of this land and you give 10 points to think about and that that has quite a bit to do with your work doesn't it i mean you you, you advise other families as well uh who are responsible for f forest and farmland could you talk a little bit about how you got into that being the eldest in out of eight children, I was very early taken in, into responsibility, feeling responsible for my brothers and sisters, feeling responsible for the place I inherited. But the property itself had become very small by these wars, um, especially the First the Second World War. We lost a lot of property by the communist deprivatization. And um, in Eastern, Eastern Germany, Eastern Europe, especially in Czech Republic. So I was never able to live from the place, but I had to work. And first I worked uh, with my father-in-law's estate then in a private bank and then i founded my own so to say small asset management company concentrating on convertible bonds and on stocks and so forth and then other families came to me knowing that we do a good job in forestry and wine and asked for help to put their turn part of their assets into forestry and and farming and so we founded this branch of our our company which um, by the way i handed over yesterday to my eldest son constantine and that's an interesting experience too and uh, the wine i handed over to my son felix and what i built now and being uh, working as an entrepreneur, I do together with my four daughters. Entrepreneurship is something I think where Christians should and could show the world that good stewardship is long term the best way to invest. Because you don't go for short term goals. Uh, you shouldn't be greedy, but 
long-term thinking is generational thinking and is also thinking about that you borrowed only what you own from your children and grandchildren and your steward for the Lord. I saw so many high-class businessmen who were only looking for their compensations and their commissions and, and whatever, um, which is very short-term minded. And when we look at the climate change subject, um, when we look at how we we kill the planet it's all about short-term thinking and not long-term thinking uh, and that's what i think we really as christians who do not look for ourselves but for the internal life is a much better perspective one of the things that you had talked about in the piece was the importance of uh political participation and the, and the importance of care for the common good in, in a political sense. How do you see that um, related to the rest of your work? It took a big part of my lifetime. At 10 years, I was very much engaged in politics. I was in the shadow cabinet for Rheinland-Pfalz, which is one of the 16 lenders responsible for environment and health. We lost the election, however, so I never made it to the top top but it was a very good experience um, to learn how difficult politics are politic means the common uh, the common uh, perspectives the the wealth of the nation and not the wealth of the only <laughs> and to take care for everybody is something I learned very early from my parents. I mean, they had this horrible experience of Nazism. My mother's brother, one of them lost his life in resistance to Hitler. So they really told me, if you don't find, fight the bad, bad part of the world, the devil, so to say, things go in the wrong direction. So this is very deep, fundamented and told to me by my parents so that I always felt responsible. I got out of politics when Philippa told me it's just too much. I was so stupid. I mean, I was a businessman. I was politician. I was family father. I was founder of different companies and uh, same time also working for the public as head of the German Forest Owners Association, the German Wine Gross, Top Wine Gross Association, so forth. I just tried to do, do too much at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and Philippa told me, uh, stop it now, the, the real politics, and I did so. But it was an very interesting experience and now till now I'm not involved in party politics anymore but I try to support good politicians from every kind from every sort of politician direction being left right whatever liberal 
uh, I'm just interested in people, in good people to support them. That's what I try to do today. So one final topic that if we, uh, let's end on a, a light note, uh, which is wine. Uh, what are the kinds of wine that your family focuses on? And I know you've been very instrumental in improving the quality of uh, the German wines. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Wine is a fruit, the nicest fruit the Lord gave us. Because it's grapes, which is science by itself, how to produce good grapes. But then you have the chance to transfer that fruit into something totally different by fermentation, which is wine. And it's so interesting because it's a good picture for what happened with Jesus. That's why he takes wine, because that's a totally change from grape to wine and wine drink in small quantity brings good ideas is very positive and tastes wonderfully it's a miracle and to be part of that miracle is is very very much um yeah a life story even more involved for Philippa herself, she is a wonderful wine lady. And for my son, Felix, my second son, who is really a wine grower and uh, to be honest, produces much better wines than I ever did. Um, they taste much, much better today. And he works as a re regenerative farmer in wine with cows, with um, chicken in his vineyards and and what wine teaches you is that you may work hard and be very much experienced and, and whatever, but still there's somebody higher who is much more involved in the wine because nature, weather, conditions you can't make. It's given by the Lord. So we try to and we learn to be humble and hopefully obedient to him to protect and take care of his nature of the wonderful things he donated to us for our lifetime to work with and to be a good steward of. And with wine, you can really bring love and joy to the people in good taste. And um, so wine brings good relationships, brings positive thinking, um, if you don't drink too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books, to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, we'll be talking with theologian Carl Truman about whether the church needs to speak differently to different generations. And then we'll be talking to Susanna's husband, Alistair Roberts, 
about the Bible's begats and about marrying into her large family. That's going to be fun. See you then.